This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello and welcome to Trumpet Hour on 101.3 KPCG-FM and online at thetrumpet.com. I'm Philip Nice and thank you for joining us this particular radio hour. And thank you to those of you who have taken a minute or two to go to your device to put into the two field letters at thetrumpet.com and let me know your thoughts on the open border, Franz Joseph Strauss and Carl Theodore Zu Gutenberg and the Institute for Strategic Dialogue and the Trumpet Print Edition and the use of vocabulary. Oh, we could go on about this one. But also propaganda on both sides in Ukraine, the evil of October 7th, the providential, to say the least, natural advantages of the United States, as well as one listener referred to of New Zealand and Australia. The providential blessings of just being human and architecture. And some of you who have indeed shared that same experience that we talked about a couple Wednesdays ago, visiting a certain Southern California campus, looking around at the buildings, the trees, the gardens, the lawns, the Grove Street stream, and realizing someone cared. The latest email at lettersatthetrumpet.com that I've received just now, just today, such a welcome email from a listener here in Oklahoma who listened to the show two weeks ago on the built environment and included with it a terrific link of two commentators you might be familiar with, Charlie Kirk interviewing Tucker Carlson, and the latter making assertions about the aesthetics of architecture that the able Sam Livingston and I were making, though not as powerfully, when we were with you last. I don't follow Kirk or Carlson closely. I respect each highly, but it may interest you to know that Tucker Carlson sees something that has happened in architecture as well, just like we were talking about. So I should invite him for Wednesday, two weeks hence, Maybe you'll at least get a recording of him talking about it with Charlie Kirk. We'll see what we can do. But again, that great interview, that great for a number of reasons besides his points on architecture, came to me from you through that all-important email address that I will remind you of now, lettersatthetrumpet.com. Just in case there was any static in the broadcast, that was lettersatthetrumpet.com. I do sincerely appreciate hearing from you when you write us there at lettersatthetrumpet.com, but I sincerely appreciate you just hearing us here at Trumpet Hour in the first place. So thank you for being with us. So maybe the eminent Mr. Carlson in two weeks' time, but this week I have invited two Philadelphia trumpet writers to bring you and me the most important news of the week, of the month, and possibly two of the top five or six developments of the entire year coming right here at the end Andrew Miller has been watching the Supreme Court for years now, actually, and for something specific to come from the Supreme Court that Philadelphia Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry has forecasted since late 2018 and, and before that. After that, we'll discuss someone who has affected the whole world, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. But first, we're going to lead off with the same thing that the February Trumpet issue will lead with, and we'll get to that right now.
Trumpet Hour is the voice of the Philadelphia Trumpet Magazine, and I have to tell you that this February 2024 issue, the 34th anniversary issue, is absolutely packed. And we've said that before. It's been true before. It's especially true with this issue. Managing editor Joel Hilliker has tried to pack everything in there. He's even talked about possibly increasing the page count of the entire magazine. Not sure if we'll do that, not making any promises, but that that's just illustrating how much is happening right now. I'm here with trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic. Hello, Mihailo. Hello. Good to be in the studio for once. Yes. You're usually joining us uh, from across the, the pond with the uh, with a video conference, and so now you're here in person, so it's good to have you here. You, as well as I, have been working on the topic that we're going to talk about, but there's just so much else that we're trying to pack into, into this issue. Of course. Well, as you said, we're even thinking about expanding the page count because there's just so much happening in the world, including with this issue where it's jam-packed with so many events that are, in some cases, even direct fulfillment of prophecies and predictions that our editor-in-chief, Mr. Fleury, has made. Some of them are more, shall we say, leading towards the actual fulfillment. There's what's going on in Iraq right now between Iran and the United States fighting it over and how that country, which not that long ago was, for all intents and purposes, colonized by the United States, has now been given to Iran. We also plan to have an article about Poland and some of the stuff that Germany's been doing to graft that country, perhaps against uh, a lot of Poles' wills, into this united European super state. And of course, uh, we, as usual, we have a lot of coverage on the political crisis in the United States and how the two sides between the radical left and the Make America Great Again movement are really getting at loggerheads. And at some points, one of those is going to crack. So a lot in this issue to look forward to. And yeah, there's just so much going on we wish we had time for. We don't, but we try to get the most important stuff in there. You're right. That story on Poland, Richard Palmer's writing on that. What Germany just did to Poland is major, major news. And yet we're having to squeeze that in. We're squeezing in the universities and the response to the uh, Hamas attack from October 7th. We have to squeeze that in. The Iraq falling to Iran that you mentioned. The corruption involving the presidency. That's our infographic. And we've got a four-pager on that. Unless we have to bump that to next issue just to, just to have space for Poland, for for the resurgence of Germany, for one particular man that Mr. Fleury has been watching since I think it was like 2009 or something like that who could be the man to control and, and really hijack Europe and European unification. We've got plans for a full-page ad on the exhibit that I don't think we've even mentioned in the trumpet yet, the King David and King Solomon exhibit at Armstrong Auditorium, another major event of a different kind. And then the, the deadly wound of the Jewish state, the fact that the peace process is actually a wound. That ties to the fact of Germany's involvement, which you've talked about and covered. It, it ties to the, the role of Herb W. Armstrong, who was an unofficial ambassador for world peace, knew Franz Joseph Strauss, knew Otto von Habsburg. You'll see the significance of that when you read that and how he connects to the peace process, to the man who might lead Europe. All of these things are main core <laughs> events that we have, have been looking for and, and major steps toward fulfilling forecasts that we've been looking for. And yet, of all of these things, the cover story is something that you've been working on in, in researching, and you've even given a, a little video on the Trump.com X account, and that is working title, 
the Battle for the Red Sea. Tell us about this major event. Yes, well, it ties in actually what I, with what I talked about last time on this program on the Week in Review, the Houthi movement that's a, a terror group that controls a large chunk of the territory in Yemen, including the capital, Sana'a, and most importantly for us today, most of the Red Sea coastline. Now, the Houthis have been in the news cycle for roughly 10 years now. There's been a obviously a civil war going on there. There's been other actors like the Saudis trying to push them out. They're backed by Iran. They're a Shiite terror group. So it's been something that's been on a lot of people's radar. But for the longest time, it didn't really impact too much that was happening outside of Yemen or outside of this general sphere. Sometimes they'll send terror attacks to some of the neighboring Arab states. But it wasn't something of global significance that we were watching. As of this past month, that has changed. And on December 9th, as we've talked about in this program before, the Houthis announced that they're going to be targeting ships sailing through the Red Sea. On the surface, this is supposed to be to show support to Hamas and everything they're doing against Israel. They said they'd be attacking Israeli ships or ships that are docking at Israeli ports. N- never mind the fact that that's still a major escalation, but they haven't even been that judicious. It looks like from what we can tell, they've been attacking basically any commercial ship that's been passing through the Bab al-Mandeb Strait, that southern exit point of the Red Sea, sailing north. And that's obviously, it's a major trade artery. I mentioned on the video that it's estimated about roughly 20% of the world's container shipment traffic just this year passed through the Red Sea. And of course, the year's not even up yet. Roughly 10% of its oil passed through the Red Sea, the Bab el-Mandeb and its sister gate, the Suez Canal. This obviously impacts countries on that trade route, like Europe, like North Africa. It also impacts North America all the way over here. It's a lot cheaper for ships to sail through the Red Sea if they're coming from Asia, if they're coming from the Middle East, than out through the Mediterranean to dock in New York or wherever than it is to sail all the way around South Africa and go through the Atlantic Ocean that way. So one of the trends we watch on this program with the Israeli war is how it impacts the wider world. This basically impacts the whole world about as much as you can, not just one country, not just one continent, but the whole world. So this is a big deal. Remember during the COVID crisis when we talked about how all these ships were backed up at at some of the ports for different reasons and the supply chain problems? This is the supply chain bottleneck for much of the world. You mentioned oil, but so many other goods in that video that you did. You talked about how just even look around the room of the things in, in the room. You don't think about them being in a container on a massive ship sailing to the port of you know New Orleans or San Francisco or Oakland rather, but the the plastic in the thing, the metal in the thing, might have crossed the ocean several times before becoming a part of that product that then crossed the ocean. <laughs> like this is you have to think of it as a circulatory system. And if you ever look at a map, if you can ever find like a maritime map of ships, you will be stunned at how many are at sea, how big they are. And you'll realize that this is the world trade circulatory system. So there are certain choke points where the ships have to go through narrow passages and control of those choke points is absolutely crucial. Iran knows that. Yes. As I mentioned, the Houthis are an Iran-backed group. Iran sponsors a lot of terror groups around the Middle East, but the Houthis are a unique one for that reason, for that geography. They control 
And, and a little disclaimer, it's not like they control all of Yemen or that the, Correct. that this is the North Korea of the Middle East or kind of thing. People have been able to sail through the straits with the Houthis around without too much problems. But they still have a pretty sizable presence there. You watch some of the videos that the Houthis show of their military, and it looks like the Russian soldiers marching through Red, Red Square. It's these organized divisions of people. It's tanks. It's uh, drones. It's all the weapons that normally you associate with states having rather than terror groups. They have, as far as an, naval warfare is concerned, they have, of course, their own ships. They have anti-ship mines. They have anti-ship missiles. Military infrastructure, most terror groups don't actually bother investing too much in, but they do because of the importance of the Bab el-Mandeb Strait, because they could disrupt world trade like this. Regarding Iran itself, for the longest time, they've denied that they've actually been supplying the Houthis with fi finances and weapons or whatnot. Everybody's known it for years, but Iran's done a decent job as to covering their tracks, if for nothing else, to give them plausible deniability. They still are denying it now, but they're doing, from what we can tell, a purposely bad job of doing it in a sense of sending a message without actually admitting to anything. Right. For example, the... The Wall Street Journal reported on December 22nd that according to what they call Western and regional security officials, an Iranian spy ship has been caught helping the Houthis track all these ships going through the Bab el-Mandeb, going through this trade corridor. And supposedly from these same sources, the Houthis themselves don't actually have the technology capable of reaching these ships a lot of these captains of these of these vessels are not stupid. They know to turn off the radio when they're going near a terror state. That obviously handicaps the Houthis quite a bit. But if it weren't for Iranian spy technology, they wouldn't have been able to hit these ships or aim at them with missiles, with drones or whatever. And from what we can tell from how many ships have been impacted, from how many interventions the U.S. Navy and other people have had to do, the Iranians seem to be doing a pretty good job at it. And also on December 23rd, there was another shall we say, a telltale sign, a merchant vessel that had some connections to an Israeli businessman but was Japanese-owned got hit by a drone that was launched directly from Iran. This is the first time Iran has done something like this from its own soil since the October 7th war began, at the same time as the Houthis are doing all these things, almost suggests that Iran is trying to say, you know what, everything that's going on, that's us. That's us right now. Don't think it's just some tiny group. We're the puppet masters. That's right. And that kind of boldness is something to behold. It's something that we've been watching for. This is just from memory, but I think it was the 67 war that the threat of closing down Israeli southern shipping is what the Israelis said, you know, it was an act of war. And that's why they launched their preliminary attack. So the Houthis are specifically targeting the Israelis and anything even remotely connected to Israelis, but they don't have to sink every ship. They don't have to hit every ship to have an effect because as you said in your video, I think it was the six largest shipping companies have responded. Yeah, the six largest shipping companies in the world. That includes household names that you might see uh, their boxes stacked up in any port in any major uh, country in this world. Those include Maersk, the Danish Shipper, they've since said that they will go through again if the U.S. protects them. We'll see how long that lasts. But also Costco, that uh, Chinese company that seems to keep popping up on this program, uh, Hapag Lloyd, the German company based in, in Hamburg. These are major companies, like some of the most important and valuable companies in the world that make the economies of everybody else go round. 
And if they're all saying in unison they're going to avoid this trade route, even if it means more expenses for them regarding fuel, regarding just feeding their own sailors, that's going to affect everybody. That's, as I mentioned in the video, that's going to affect not just fuel, but things as basic as food, as clothing, as even just say, supposing the suit jacket that I'm wearing, supposing it was made in the United States. Well, maybe it was put together. Where did the cotton come from? Where did the dye come from? Where was the polyester manufactured, et cetera, et cetera. All these components from everywhere, because of our globalized economy, even if you try to buy something like buy American, hire American or wherever country you're from, that's not necessarily the case with absolutely every component in the product. And when something like this happens with these large companies, everybody's going to feel it everywhere in almost every sector. Yeah. Again, this is the global commerce circulatory system. Like you said, not only do the finished goods get to where they're going on a ship, but the materials themselves, the lumber, the fabrics, the metals, the plastics, all of these things cross oceans more than once before they become a final product. And a lot of them go through the Red Sea and Germany, Spain, Italy, Britain, Japan, Turkey, the United States, France, they all use bases right across the water from the Houthis. So this is an absolute choke point, and Iran's pushing, and Iran is bold enough to say, we will threaten this even as your forces look at us across the water. This is a big deal. This is a big move by Iran. And the reason we're watching for this, I mean, Iran obviously has its tentacles in a lot of different areas, but the reason this particular event or series of events, shall we say, is important was because it ties into a prophecy in Daniel 11, verse 40, that editor-in-chief keeps going again and again and again with explaining the Middle East, with explaining the rise of Islam, with explaining what to watch for. And it speaks of a king of the south, which he identifies as an Iran-led radical Muslim bloc, attacking a king of the north, which he identifies through biblical and secular proof as a united European power, and that this Iranian bloc will push or provoke, the Hebrew means to butt with horns, at this power. The next verses talk about how Iran will have countries like Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia at its helm. All these countries that border the Mediterranean Red Sea corridor, that border this supremely important trade choke point, especially for Europe. And because of that, Mr. Fleury has pointed to Iran controlling world trade and cutting off these trade choke points as being a big part of the push. Even just recently, an Iranian general mentioned that they would like to close the Straits of Gibraltar too if they could. I have no idea how they do that, but... Controlling trade is on their mind. This isn't just about Yemen. This is about attacking Europe, per se. The rest of the prophecy talks about how Iran is going to push until Europe counterattacks with a whirlwind, and it leads into a, a much bigger conflict than probably anybody was anticipating. Thankfully, the end result of that prophecy is uh, the direct intervention of God by mankind and uh, solving all these problems. So it's not just all bad news, but when the greatest crisis in the world happens because of a push from Iran on these trade choke points. When they start doing that in such a sensitive spot, we need to take notice. This is not a small issue. That's right. And Mr. Flory has been pointing to Iran as this, quote unquote, king of the south for, is it 94, 92 or 94? I think it might have been 93. 93. Okay. <laughs> Somewhere in the early 90s there. And so much could have happened between now and then. And yet, what do we see? We see a powerful regional force in Iran and its ability to exert asymmetrical power through terrorism, which you can't really fight with a conventional military. 
and it's getting stronger and it's pushing more. The Europeans have gotten involved in trying to police the Red Sea and not exactly under the leadership of the United States. So we're seeing more of a direct confrontation between the two. Again, so much could have happened between the 90s and now, but we're seeing Iran as the king of the South. You'll want to look at the trumpet.com slash library, go to the king of the South and read that book that has a really interesting section in it that actually documents the prophecy itself that Mr. Flurry's forecast and, and how it has aged. And I would say it has aged well. Mihail Zekic, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Here in our second segment, we're focusing in on something that was the focus of the nation a couple of years back, and it is about to be the focus of the nation again. I'm here with Trumpet staff writer and fact checker manager, Andrew Miller. Hello, Hello. Andrew. And what we want to focus on here is the Supreme Court. First, let's go back, Andrew, you and me, and, and the listener, to November and December 2020. And that's been months and years ago now, but if you think back to it, it was just such a time of tumult. We had had an election where the intelligence agencies had gotten involved, election laws had been modified, election laws had been just outright broken. You know, we had late ballots coming in, we had just this chaos of an election compared to to previous elections in America. The counting was delayed. There was this excuse from this state, that excuse from that state. There were statistical anomalies that you could literally graph, and they were not normal. And a lot of people had a lot of questions about it. And where do you turn when you have something like that? You turn to the courts. You turn to the judiciary. You present your evidence, right? And so a lot of people did that to lower courts and all the way up to the Supreme Court. And I remember there were there were dozens of lawsuits, some of which reached all the way up to the Supreme Court. And then in a what was apparently a pretty contentious decision, I think it was Texas versus Pennsylvania was the big case that was before the Supreme Court. The justices declined to hear a single case. Yeah, just going back to November 2020, that was the most strange election in American history. It come right after the COVID pandemic, so they dramatically increased mail-in balloting. Actually, about a third of the ballots cast that year were mail-in ballots. And a lot of uh, state secretaries of state had actually changed the deadline on those mail-in ballot laws unilaterally at the last minute in a number of cases without consulting state legislatures at all in moves that were blatantly illegal. And so people were hoping that the Supreme Court would get involved and make sure something like this doesn't happen again or and then like I said, in a number of cases there were at least sixty cases against Donald Trump. I don't know if all of those made it to the Supreme Court, but there were at least 60 co- cases that got thrown out of court. And so the the Supreme Court, they just refused to get involved in this. I don't know if they remembered back 
to the Bush versus Gore days where people were upset that the court got involved, but they they just let it play out and let let Biden take the oath of office without weighing in at all about some of the really blatant violations of election law that did take place in, uh, well, six swing states primarily, but in many states across the nation. That's right. And I remember, and this was just a rumor, I think this is definitely just a, a rumor, but it could have been true that the justices met in person to discuss whether or not to take, I think it was Texas versus Pennsylvania, and that there was actually shouting heard in, in, in the court offices. So that, that could be a rumor, but it definitely was contentious, that decision. And when the courts won't hear you, when the Supreme Court won't hear you, and we're talking about entire states suing other states, this is something that basically only the Supreme Court can decide under our constitution, then the court left it to Congress, right? And to the representatives of the people presenting their evidence for why they don't want the election to be certified. And then the other side arguing back and having debate on national television. And that was scheduled as it happens for January 6th, 2021. Right. And then that, that actually highlights just how much evidence there was, because uh, it wouldn't be surprise me if there was sup- screaming in the Supreme Court, because that was that contentious and contentious enough that 435 members of the House of Representatives and about 100 of them, like almost a quarter mm-hmm. of Congress, was prepared to get up and protest the legitimacy of this election. Now on January 6th, there were protests outside while the, that was happening, and some of those protests turned violent, at least some, uh, some pockets of violence there that Congress used. They, they declared a recess, and when they came back, I guess just kind of on the threat of they didn't want to riot, those, a lot of those 100 congressmen lost their nerve. Only a couple of them protested the vote. The rest did what the Supreme Court did and just let it ride out. Right. And like you said earlier, it all kind of died down. Joe Biden was certified at something like 344 in the morning, January 7th, in the middle of the night. And he was inaugurated without incident. Donald Trump left Washington without incident, despite some claims to the contrary that he was going to be dragged out of the White House kicking and, and screaming. And really, a lot of this kind of died down. It's like, okay, Joe Biden's president now. And this whole thing kind of died down. The Supreme Court's role certainly, you know, never eventuated. So attention kind of moved away from that. There was some question whether Donald Trump would even run again. I think personally, maybe even in his own mind, he he had to decide whether to run again. But throughout all of that, the Trump and, and Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has been saying, no, this man will be president again. This man will have the office of president again, Donald Trump. And so we've been looking for this to happen. And we've specifically been looking for the Supreme Court to have a role in this happening. Right, right. Well, like I said, back November, December 2020, many people were looking for the Supreme Court to have a role because there were a bunch of Supreme Court cases. Then when the court declined to hear all any of those cases, it looked like the Supreme Court probably wasn't going to have a role. However, at that point, we didn't have any inside information or legal insights to show that the Supreme Court was actually going to get involved. But there is a prophecy in Amos 7 about an end time antitype of King Jeroboam II of Israel who our editor-in-chief has identified as Donald Trump. 
And the end time prophecy, interestingly enough, it talks about this end time political figure being supported by two organizations, primarily. Uh, one is called the King's Chapel. That's in Amos 7, verse 13. And the other one's actually called the King's Court in the King James Version. If you look into the original Hebrew, King's Chapel is a very good translation. King's Court, it's more like the Kingdom's Court. So you have a chapel. Uh, a chapel's a religious movement. You go to the chapel. So you have a religious movement that's loyal to King Jeroboam. And then you have a secular legal movement, a court, that's loyal to the kingdom, but who also favors the Jeroboam figure. I'm doing a little bit of Euclidean logic there. If the chapel's loyal to Jeroboam, then there's, it's almost like they're, they're loyal to him personally. But the kingdom's court, if they're loyal to the kingdom and favor Jeroboam, indicating that the Jeroboam figure has the law on his side, uh, he, he has the, the legal principles on his side in this case. He's up against something that's trying to subvert the laws of the kingdom. Right. And I went back through some of the old transcripts and so forth and, and looked at this. Mr. Floyd has been talking about this verse in Amos for decades and drawing attention to the, the specific wording that you mentioned there for several years now. And through the years, he was focusing on the, the King's Chapel. And then in more recent years, back to uh, late 2018, he zeroed in on the King's Court. And like you said there, it's not just you know him, but also other commentaries and, and, and the Hebrew language show that that word King's Court is a better kingdom or, or nation, right? So it has a national role. And in the Supreme Court of the United States, it has authority over the presidency in many ways. The president appoints justices, but the justices, a majority of the justices can declare the actions of a president illegal, you know, unconstitutional, at least historically, that's been its role. So this is a, a distinct entity in this, in this verse if Donald Trump is a type of Jeroboam and the King's Chapel is a religious movement that supports him and the King's Court is a court that supports him. Well, our editor-in-chief's been identifying Donald Trump as a type of Jeroboam since about the 2016 election. I actually think a little before the 2016 election. Uh, and so back then, it would have seemed maybe a little strange to some people to think of the real estate guy who did The Apprentice being supported by the religious people in America and by the Supreme Court. Although we are, we are as odd as it is, they are seeing right now, it's that... Um, Donald Trump, he still has the support of about 50% of America's Catholics and 80% of America's evangelicals. And so together, that's roughly about two-thirds, uh, a supermajority of the religious people in America support Donald Trump. And then the court, you've got five conservative justices, uh, whatever John Roberts is, and then three right. liberal justices. <laughs> so they, like I said, the conservative movement on the Supreme Court favors him as well. Right. From what I could find, the the first time Mr. Fleury zeroed in on applying Jeroboam to President Trump does go back to 2016, 2017. The first mention I can find of the King's Court, Mr. Fleury assigning the King's Court to the Supreme Court of the United States, late 2018. And if we're going back in time, we're remembering back to that time who <laughs> was focused on the Supreme Court's role in giving Donald Trump a second term, 
right? He was still in his first term. He was halfway through his first term. The, the occasion that turned Mr. Flurry's attention to this was the Kavanaugh confirmation, right? So the COVID-19 hadn't happened. Draconian responses by governments worldwide, including the United States, had not happened. Changing election laws legally and illegally hadn't happened. The 2020 election hadn't happened. And yet this, this bit of understanding comes into place with Mr. Flurry that the King's Chapel and the Kingdom's Court are going to have to do with the success, the power of President Trump. And President Trump successfully nominated and had confirmed Justice Kavanaugh in 2018, Justice Gorsuch in 2017 before that, and later Justice Amy Coney Barrett in 2020. And as you pointed out to me, actually, that he appointed somewhere around 230 total federal judges and almost as many federal appellate judges, so this is kind of mid-level judges, slightly higher up judges, as Obama did in eight years. So a lot of appointments, a lot of conservative appointments in the judiciary. And uh, I think Joe Biden's trying to outpace that, but he won't be able to just because there's not that many openings. So the federal judiciary, and especially the Supreme Court, were going to have a role, Mr. Flurry said, in late 2018. Now, fast forward us to 2023 and what's happening with the Supreme Court. Yeah, it's actually kind of ironic in this case, because if the Democrats who tried to steal the election with mail-in ballots would have just been content with their victory and let sleeping dogs lie, they may have ridden this out. But they got punitive and did two things that may backfire on them. Uh, One is anybody who, at that January 6th protest, who walked into the Capitol, they locked up and put in solitary confinement. And many of them are still there. That's still unconscionable to me. I do not understand how that's happening in this country, but go ahead. Then, after they locked these people up and put them in um, confinement, they hired a special prosecutor, Joe Biden did, Jack Smith, who did his third indictment against Donald Trump, making the case that instead of Trump trying to get those 100 senators to debate the evidence of election fraud to make the claim that Trump deliberately stirred up the rioters that made Congress go into recess. It's an illogical argument. It's like there's no reason Trump would stir up rioters to make the people talking about election fraud in Congress stop talking about it. That's something that would only benefit the radical left. But because Jack Smith's making the claim that Trump did this on purpose, uh, they're trying to claim that he basically tried to take over the Capitol by force, not via law which would make him an insurrectionist. And Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution bans insurrectionists from holding public office. The Colorado Supreme Court's actually already leapfrogged Jack Smith. And right, and this just happened last week, I think, December this 20th. On the 19th, on the 19th 20th, okay. of December. Yeah. yeah, so he came in, the Colorado Supreme Court, their justices said that. It's like, well, they said, because Trump's guilty of insurrection, they didn't prove he was guilty of insurrection. They said, well, because he, because everybody knows that Trump's guilty of insurrection, Article 14 bans him from office. We are applying the provision of the Constitution that was put there to ban Confederates from office. So now you've got a case to where the Supreme Court definitely has to get involved in the next couple of weeks. I think the Colorado judges kind of realize this is going to get overturned because in their majority opinion, like the last section of the majority opinion, it says this decision is stayed. January 4th. 
right. pending appellate action, which means that before January 4th, the Supreme Court's going to have to come in and say, can Trump run in Colorado or right. not? There's another case where because um, <laughs> when they did this insurrection, it's not like a bunch of Visigothic hordes descended on the Capitol. You had a handful of people like wandering through the places where tourists normally go. And so the only thing they could gig these guys on was obstructing an official proceeding using a particular statute that was put in place to stop evidence tampering after the Enron scandal. Right, right. In the 90s, yeah. They said, it's okay. So we put this statute in the 90s after the Enron scandal to prevent you from tampering with evidence. They said, because... Congress is an official proceeding and Congress went into recess because there were some tourists outside. They gigged them with that statue. And so one of the guys, Joseph Fisher, has appealed that. Saying That's that, right. That, hasn't, that didn't apply. And originally the local court said, you're right, you're off the hook. Uh, then after that, the appellate court came in and overturned the local ruling. And now he's applied up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court's accepted it. Right, right. So now not only does the Supreme Court have to rule on whether the Colorado Supreme Court ruling is constitutional or not, they have to rule on whether this particular statute that they used against the January 6th protesters was constitutional or not. If it's not, and they rule that they're not guilty of disrupting an official proceeding, then there there was no insurrection because the, the entire claim of the insurrection is that violent insurrectionist forced the meeting that was certifying the election to go into recess. Right. And and apparently, according to them, the plan for the insurrection was for Congress to never certify, <laughs> you know, because there are people spray painting things on the ball, ban- banisters outside, they'd never be able to certify the election. Like that's that's the claim. If, if, if President Trump is guilty of insurrection, that was apparently his plan is to just have people right. riot indefinitely <laughs> which i guess historically happened like at the storming of the bastille in the french revolution right. <laughs> where like they just came in took over and kicked out the previous government in this case there's like no one in their right mind thinks right. that they intended that the election to never be certified they just wanted congress to look at the evidence and certify it for someone different and so in this case so the supreme court's going to have to get involved in both these cases it's almost assured I don't normally put statistics on it, but it's like 99% assured <laughs> that the Supreme Court is going to overturn the Colorado decision and say that, yes, Trump can't, does have the right to run for office in Colorado in 2024. I don't know what decision they're going to make on the uh, Joseph Fisher case, but it definitely is striking right at the heart of the election fraud because they're basically going to have to rule on is like, are these people guilty of insurrection or, or not? And if it's not, then, like, the entire Trump January 6th claim is just thrown out in a way that would actually probably really help Trump's popularity the next election. Because if, if you can prove that, like, the, the government's trying to pre-screen what candidates the America can vote for, it's a serious charge to claim someone's guilty of insurrection. And if they falsely claim you're guilty of insurrection, that could really help Trump in the election. So that's kind of like one of these things where it's like, don't, so my grandpa always used to tell me, it's like a don't start fights, you can't win type thing. It's like if the uh, Democrats are going to try to 
ban Trump from office using the 14th Amendment, they better be sure they can do it. Because if they try to ban him from office and can't, and he runs for office, he'll be even more popular than he was before they tried. So to paraphrase the the recent trumpet brief, the Supremes finally get involved. If you haven't subscribed already, the trumpet.com slash brief. But this is by executive editor Stephen Flurry. It's December 2023. The topic of the 2020 election is red hot. And the Supreme Court is finally getting involved. And that's something we've been looking for since at least late 2018 because of the focus of Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry on the Kingdom's Court. So we'll put in the show notes links to some of these things. And Andrew Miller, thanks for watching it and keep an eye on it for us. And thanks for the segment. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is Trumpet Hour. Jesus of Nazareth, 2,000 years ago, born in Bethlehem, Judea, Roman Empire, raised in the household of Joseph and Mary, eldest of several brothers and sisters, carpenter, teacher, accused of sedition, tried, convicted, tortured, executed in less than 24 hours. At the age of 33, Jesus of Nazareth, the one person who, more than any other king, general, philosopher, has changed the last third of human history and the western half of this planet, has changed, dear listener, your life. You believe, if you are like most people within range of this radio station and conversant in this language, and even most who aren't, in the historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth existed, because It is a historical fact. And you believe, even if you don't realize it, in core principles tracing back to what he taught. Your history, your founders, your concepts of freedom and justice, good and evil, trace back to this man. So many times both sides of the argument are trying to appeal to a concept of right and wrong in that in that situation, one side is wrong. Both sides might be wrong, but they're both claiming to be right and defining good in a way that they don't even know traces back to the record of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Patrick Henry said, It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ, For this very reason, peoples of other faiths have been afforded asylum, prosperity, and freedom of worship here. So in the broad outlines that we're talking about, this belief in Jesus of Nazareth has affected you, and and you believe in, in many of the principles that, as I say, trace back to this figure. Religious freedom, no state compulsion, coercion, taxation of religion, no prohibition on the free exercise of religion. Why? Thomas Jefferson, Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom, to abbreviate. Whereas Almighty God hath created the mind free, but although Lord both of body and mind, yet chose not to propagate it by coercion on either, as was in his almighty power to do. The God that's described in the Bible, the 
the God that's described by this Jesus of Nazareth, its belief in that God and those principles set forth in that Bible that have, in a, in a very basic way, defined Western society. Our logic, our reasoning, our constitutions, our statutes are like this, are traced back to some of these fundamental ideas. Uh, your attitudes toward ideas of freedom, of, of what's right to do to someone else, what's right to do well, for the government to do to someone else, traces back, believe it or not, to Jesus. The more I'm thinking about it, even as I'm talking about it, the more astounding that fact is. I was going to make a shorter point of it, and we could go on, but you believe, more likely than not, to some degree or another, that Jesus not only was a historical figure, but that he was the Christ, and that he was the Son of God. The actual Son of God, God being the Father, Jesus being the Son, and you live in a society built, to some degree, in the basic belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And you believe, don't you? You might not talk about it much, that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. If you are among the many who believe that you are Christian, then that is what you believe. You believe that God created the universe and the rational laws governing it. You believe that God created man, that God said, let us make man in our image, two beings there talking to each other. Let us make man. And you believe that a God became a man. That's how much this God is interested in man, how much this God loves man. And if you consider yourself a Christian, you believe that you are staking your life on this, your life now and if there is life after death, your life after death. And if there is eternal life, your eternal life. When you say you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus as the Christ. You perhaps study Jesus Christ. You perhaps pray to God the Father through Jesus Christ. You keep a day every week, certain days every year to try to worship Jesus Christ. You are staking your life, maybe casually staking your life, maybe earnestly staking your life to this belief that Jesus Christ is the greatest moral teacher that ever was or ever will be, that he and his father are the one true God. You believe that this is God, not the blue-skinned, four-armed, three-eyed Shiva destroyer, supreme omniscient yoga lord wearing a serpent god around his neck living on a mountain in Tibet. Not the blue-skinned, four-armed, supreme Vishnu holding a conch and a divine discus and a lotus and a club, which pervades everything and preserves everything and transforms everything that became eightfold, elevenfold, twelvefold into infinitefold and is supreme. Not his consort Lakshmi or their 18 sons or Kamadeva or Devasena. Not the red-skinned, four-armed, elephant-headed supreme Ganesha. Not the 16-armed Mahadevi who is actually all the other gods and goddesses and truth and the source of everything and the goddess into which everything disappears. Not the red-skinned, four-armed, four-headed, bearded Brahma on a swan who made himself, who is your soul inside you and is yourself outside you. Not Selu, the corn mother creator, not the first brother who hit the first sister with a fish and told her to multiply. Not Surya, the sun god in a chariot. Not Ra, the sun god. Not Saul Invictus, the sun god. Not Tiamat or Abzu or Baal or Ashtoreth or Marduk or Molech. Not Zeus or Apollo or Venus or Diana or Jupiter or Mars. Not 
the Buddha in the sphere of nothingness and the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception and his triple baskets of texts and his middle way of avoiding endless reincarnation. Not the great spirit, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, or the great water beetle, or the little people, or animal spirits. Not the a and soft, mysterious, beginningless God with no thoughts or characteristics. And not the boundless, amorphic, incomparable, indistinct version of God called Allah. And not even the single and solitary God of Judaism. And not nothingness. You don't believe in, you don't worship nothingness. You are surrounded by people who do. You live in a society that even exists because of the teachings of Jesus, and yet it rejects the existence of Jesus as the Son of God, God the Father as God, all those other gods I just mentioned as God. It rejects the existence of any God. And you are standing out of all of that And if you live in this country or basically this hemisphere, this Western world, you are facing, you are under a tidal wave of people who believe in a God, if you call it that, of evolution. And you are enduring bias and scorn and rejection and so much more, you know better than I do, uh, by saying that you believe Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the Son of God. So here's the thing. If you are going to tell me about religion, you tell me about reality. Don't tell me ideas about Jesus Christ. Tell me about Jesus Christ. Not Jesus Christ mixed with your ideas. Not Jesus Christ mixed with your seminary's ideas. Not Jesus Christ mixed with generations of traditions with Baal or Marduk or Norse gods or Slavic gods or Druid traditions or things that people made up. Whoever is going to teach me, whoever is going to teach you about Jesus Christ, teach me exactly who Jesus Christ was and is. Teach me exactly what Jesus Christ said and did. We'll not be mixing around and messing around with this. No matter who you are or how charismatic a youth pastor you are or how many hundreds of years back your traditions about Jesus Christ go or or any of that, you are a saying to represent to me Jesus Christ and saying things like love Jesus and believe Jesus and obey Jesus and Jesus as a lifestyle and church as a social group and the Bible as a pop culture symbol, Jesus as a pop culture symbol cannot be just that. There is too much at stake. And as I say, some of you are exhibiting courage to stand up to tidal waves of resistance and unfairness and bias and scorn and worse because you are one of the few in your job or school or group who believes in Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ. Whoever is talking to you about Jesus Christ better be telling you exactly who he was. And that's my whole point. And whatever you believe and do better be what the actual Jesus Christ actually taught and commanded. It's an extraordinary thing, if you step back and think about it, to believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. And many people, once they make that step, they make that the sum total of it. The whole religion is just believing that one extraordinary thing. But believing in Jesus Christ by definition is more than that. 
So tell me who Jesus Christ was. Tell me what Jesus Christ did. Tell me what Jesus Christ said. No error, no coloring, no shading, no minor imperfections. Tell me exactly the truth about Jesus Christ. I mean, he talked about prophecy, this word that means predictions, forecasts of the future. This is not something I would naturally be interested in personally, something I'd naturally just leave to other people who are more inclined to being interested in the future. But Jesus Christ was a prophet. A lot of prophecies are from him. So why don't we hear much about that? He talked about the gospel of the kingdom of God. Why don't we hear much about that? And when I read you know, about the kingdom of God, what he actually said about it. And he says a lot. It's not just another way of saying, accept Jesus into your heart. There is a lot more to this than that. That's a dangerous mistake. But he talked about false gospels, false Christs, false churches. Why don't we hear about that in our churches? And also, why do we have so many different and conflicting churches in the first place if they're all worshiping Jesus Christ? And... Why are these churches too weak to hold the convictions of men? Churches too weak to stand up to the perversions and the destructions of people, of children, of bodies and minds. Either there is something wrong with American churches or the Jesus that they worship is as labyrinthine and puzzling and mystifying as the religions of the East. And as the religions in some cases of the East portray him to be, some of them acknowledge that he was a God, one of many in their system. You have a belief, if you are a Christian, that Jesus was the Christ. You are standing by that belief. You are living a different life in many cases than you otherwise would. So you, so I have got to take that seriously This is not a situation where if you just say you're Christian, then you're on base. You believe in God, Father and Son, who created the universe and all its lawfulness, who loved their human creation so much that one of them became a human, that one of them suffered the worst torture and execution you can inflict on a human, will not be mixing this with other ideas made up by human beings or any other beings. If we're going to talk about Jesus every week, it's not going to be a vain repetition. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's, there isn't a mystic power in the syllables. We are staking everything on Jesus the Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ, believe in Jesus Christ. What he said, what he did, what he inspired, what he commanded, and what he said about his father. You cannot, I cannot get it secondhand, mix in a little of our own take on the whole thing and pass it on to the next generation with a little bit of our own traditions, a little bit of our own ideas. No, the real Jesus Christ, the real God, the Father. That's what I've been thinking about this week. It's a long road that's brought us here. Insist on reality. We talk a lot about Jesus Christ. We have to know who he was, what he taught. That's Trumpet Hour this Wednesday. Thanks for joining us. I recommend Mystery of the Ages at thetrumpet.com, available, of course, completely free. Mystery of the Ages by Herbert W. Armstrong, written as a companion, a guide book to the Bible. Mystery of the Ages at thetrumpet.com. Email us your thoughts on what we've talked about this 
week, the King of the South and the Red Sea, the role of the Supreme Court, the Kingdom's Court, and Jesus Christ. Letters at thetrumpet.com is the email address. We look forward to hearing your thoughts. We try to respond, and we'll look forward to hearing from you. Join us on Friday for the Week in Review edition of the show, and thanks again for joining us on Trumpet Hour.